might, you know, might change things, might be a little blurry. So uh, for those that are watching online, I apologize. I can't not move when I, when I preach. So like, you're just gonna have to work with me this morning, all right? <laughs> but everybody good this morning? Yeah. Yeah? Everybody's all right? Amen, amen. Yeah, everybody, flip with me to the book of Nehemiah. To the book of Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm privileged to, to have an opportunity to take a stab at a, at a series. The time is now. The time is now. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to sharing what, what God's been working on me. You know, that's typically the vantage point that I always like to preach on. I always say it from the pulpit. It makes no sense for me to preach on something that I think I got figured out. I'd rather bring you guys into the loop on something I am actively figuring out. Amen? Mm -hmm. Anyways. Everybody there in Nehemiah chapter 1? Yes. Amen. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. It says the following. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, the, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning... Uh, the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4 says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you and night, before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded the Moses. And that is the word that you commanded the Lord Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people. You have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I'm going to stop there. I entitled my message this morning, The Time is Now, Dash, for an Effective Church. The time is now for an effective church. Let's pray right before we get into it. God, we come to you again, Lord, and we just thank you for, Lord, just letting us dive into your word. And we thank you, Father God, that no matter the context, Lord, when we come together and we read your word and we speak and we, and we discuss it and share it amongst ourselves, Father, you move. You move, Lord. So we ask you to do that now. I pray, Lord, that the words I speak be your words, Lord. It may not be anything that I'm saying, anything that any of my ideas, Lord, but I, I pray that every word that I speak be what exactly we need to share with your body, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, for just, again, giving us the privilege and the opportunity to be able to come together. We pray that you soften our hearts and open our minds to receive all that you have for us, Lord. 
pray that we walk out differently than the way that we walked in. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 So, question. I was I was open up with a question, right? Sometimes the questions are better than others, but I got a question Who here, by show of hands, can tell me that they feel like they're good with kids? A lot more women than men. <laughs> Makes sense. Alright. Man, there's some people that are super good with kids. You know? I always think of Miss Tish. Where's Miss Tish? Miss Tish, there you are. Miss Tish is really good with kids. Miss Tish was my teacher, like she was my kids' teacher. She used to teach uh, um, uh, boys, girls, BGMs, what on BGM is BGMC Boys, Girls, Missionary Crusade. BGMC. It was these little barrels that we would uh, that the kids would, would put coins in, and those, those little barrels were collected, and they were sent overseas to you know developing countries, countries that are in need. And man, Miss is just one of those people. I like it. Just means her. When I think of like who is somebody that is just great with kids, I always think of her because it's like she doesn't even try. You know what I mean? Like if you ever see her in a play, like that's just Miss Tish being Miss Tish. You know, like she's just doing what she does best. Whereas me, if I'm honest. I love to be honest with you guys. I'm gonna be straightforward. I'm not gonna, you know, lie to you. If you, if you guys are coming here, I owe you that much. I personally have always felt that I'm not the best with kids. I'm gonna be straight. Any guys here that feel the same way? Probably stand here. I mean, I don't want to be the outcast here, but like, I just for real, I, I don't know for whatever reason. I, like, it's not like I'm bad with them, but I have to try. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's, there's a lot of women here, like, NASA, it just comes from within. They're just good. I feel like Brianna's that way. Brianna's really good with kids. I'm the type of guy that if you have a newborn, it's probably unlikely that I'm going to ask to hold your newborn. I just, I don't want to hold your newborn. I just, personally, and I'm being straight with you guys, I'm not a huge fan of the newborn phase, even with my own kids. I just feel like they're super fragile and I'm scared of damaging them. You know what I mean? I really like the phase that Judah's in right now. Three years old is my favorite year thus far. Because he says the funniest things, and he does the funniest things, and you can wrestle him and push him around, and like, like in a nice way, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, not like, no, I'm not hurting the kid, you know? But like, he's fun, he's like, oh boy, you know what I mean? He wants to like jump on you. That I really like, but I've always felt like, uh, I don't know, I've just never been the, the best with kids. So I, when, when I was pregnant with Judah, I was like super nervous. I was super nervous and I was like, man, I don't know, I, like, I'm scared that I'm not gonna be a good dad because like, like what if I'm just not a good dad because I'm not like, you know, play the Nino, you know? Like not that I didn't want kids, I just felt like I don't have that like, you know, that, that thing, you know what I mean? That, 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 that. But then he was born. And then when he's born, I don't know what happened. And for those that are parents, you know exactly what happens. Like something happens inside of you that just like I I I I compare it to like a light switch going off. You know, I was talking to a coworker of mine who doesn't have any kids, and he was asking me, he was like, "Yo, you kids? Like, yeah, man, I got two." And he goes, "Oh man, y'all are busy." I'm like, "Word up." <laughs> but he, I, I told him, he's like, "What's been the biggest transition for you? What's been the biggest change since you've had children?" And I was like, "Well, honestly, the you know the fact that it was just me and my wife at first. And then now, you know, like, whereas we can go out and, you know, we can go out to eat and not worry about anything. Now we're worrying about, like, a child and, like, bedtime and stuff like that. 
And I was like, to be honest with you, I was scared that like I just wouldn't, and I wasn't gonna have like this connection or something. But to be honest with you, the minute they're born, like something turns off, like something flips on inside of you that like you just cannot even, you can't. There's just there's no word for it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh man, you know I feel the same way. I'm you know like I'm nervous about it or whatever. The one thing that I don't think I was ever prepared for when it comes to having kids is how deeply you hurt when they hurt. That's something that like I, I don't think I could have ever like prepared for. You know? My dad always told me, like, you're never gonna know the level of parents you become. And he's like, he hit the nail on the head with that. Cause like we when I see either Judah or Addy and they're either in like physical pain or something is bothering them, man, it like hurts deeply. You know, I've taken Judah to the ER twice already. Once because he split the back of his skull in the shower, which was great. Um, the second time was because he was literally watching Moana, the, the Disney movie Moana. He was dancing around like he always does. And in Lulu, like he like slipped and like face first hit the tile. Like it made the loudest smack I have I have ever heard it fold. If you will, he he looked at me. His nose was this wide. Like blood started dripping down, and so I was like, this kid literally just broke his nose. So I brought him to the ER. Fortunately, he did. We, we did x-rays and, and he was perfectly fine. But taking him there, man, is one of the worst feelings yeah. as a parent. Like you were sitting there looking at this poor child thinking, I wish it was my face that hit that tile just so you don't have to sit here and go through what it is that you're going through. I wish it was the back of my skull that was split right now versus yours. And boy, he had to get staples in the back of his head. And, you know, Judah, Judah's sick right now. He's had a fever for the past three days. And you know when you see your child and like they're like umbao, you know, like they're they are they are they are not the same. And those that know Judah knows that he's like a tornado. And so like when he's when he's like he's not a hundred percent, it hurts and it and it pains you and it like truly you feel a deep sense of like I hate this. I, I really, really, really hate this. So we're um we're on this series entitled, The Time Is, The Time Is Now. And as I was praying about what to preach about, the Lord brought me to the book of Nehemiah. Now, I have preached out of the book of Nehemiah before. But in typical God fashion, he'll bring you back to show you something different, right? Or he wants you to camp on something that perhaps you didn't camp on before, such as the case with, with this morning. And there's three observations that I wanted to kind of bring forth this morning that I think lead to... An effective church. There are things that contribute to a church being effective, a body of believers being affected, and I kind of wanted to dive into that this morning. The first thing that I want to notate is, is Nehemiah's response to the news that the Jewish people, the Israelites, are in need. So for a little bit of context for you, the Israelites resided in Jerusalem, the promised land, but it was conquered by the Babylonians, right? And what do the Babylonians do? They deport the Israelites to Babylon, and they completely smashed the city. After about 70-some-odd years or so, the Babylonians allow the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. And so some do, not all of them, but some do. And when they do, they come back to what? A city that's an absolute, like, shadows. It's, it's like the, there is no gate to the city. There's no fortress to a city. So now you've got to think in terms of how they thought. A city that has no gates, a city that has no walls is literally a, a ticking time bomb. It is a city that is waiting to get sacked once again. And so 
Nehemiah asks his, his brothers and, and he asks them what's going on with the people in, in Jerusalem. And, and he's given a bad report. He's given a report that look, the, the city walls are, are, are broken. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're in need. They're in need. And in hearing that, Nehemiah says that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And it says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It says that he wept and he mourned for days. And so I read that first passage, right, as I was preparing this message. And I figured, to be honest with you, once again, I was convicted. I was a little bit convicted as I was reading that. Convicted because in my mind, it makes absolute sense for me to mourn when my kids are hurting or in need. It makes complete sense. That's super easy for me because they're mine. They're my kids. But I ask myself, when have I ever, when have I personally, when have me, Ricky, when have I wept for those in need? Like when have I, when have I mourned? When have I, when have I been deeply hurt and mourned for those in, in need of help? And I sat there and I and I read and I thought and I had to reflect and be honest with myself and I came to the conclusion that I don't know that I have. And if I have, it's been so long ago that I forgot about it. Now, I'm using those in need pretty broadly. I've been to the Dominican Republic before, and I've seen people that living in conditions where at a certain time of the day, literally, like, the electricity goes out and they're sitting in the dark, and you see these people that are, like, living just with dirt streets. I mean, that, you, man, that, that, that affects you. That affects you. That, that really, I mean, that can sit pretty heavy with you. But what about those in need in, in our own country? What about those that are spiritually in need? What about those that are, are in need in, in a different way than just, you know, those in a, in a third world country, those that are spiritually looking for something and they're, and they're searching for answers and they're trying to find solace and, and restoration in something that is so far from the word of God, so far from what can actually bring any peace. What about people like those that are truly in need? The type of people that we see on the TV, the type of people that are protesting on the streets, the type of people that are indulging in drugs, the type of people that are indulging in pornography or prostitution, or whatever it might be, those that are living an, uh, uh, an adulterous lifestyle, those that are in need, whether they know it or not. When was the last time that I sat there and I mourned or I wept for those in need? Now, I must say that I'm not using weeping or mourning or crying as the benchmark of like, hey, if you're not weeping, like you're not really feeling it. But it, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, is when have I hurt for those people? When have I really hurt for those people? You see, I, I'm going to be straight with you. I look at a world, um, I see a world that, that is, is running from God. And, and to be honest with you, I, I don't hurt, I don't mourn. I, Kind of get angry about it. It upsets me. It upsets me. I, I get angry when I when I see those that hold vastly different views than my own, and I know that those views lead to death. I know that those views lead to nothing that is that is actually of any of any real eternal significance. I get angry. I can't help it. I get I get mad. I don't hurt more. I get picked off. I get angry when I see a society and a culture that's entertaining things that I find to be absolutely delusional and stupid. I get mad. You know, I get I get I get upset. I don't I don't weep. I, I get I get angry when I see people carelessly living their lives as though their decisions have no eternal repercussions. I don't 
I don't weep. I don't weep. Am I the only one that feels that way? Am I the only one that can't help but turn on the TV and doesn't find the need to cry? Instead, I kind of get PO'd. Can we be straight for a moment? You see, as, as like I, I, I can't help but like the, the, the older I've got, gotten and the more I, I see the way that you know things are moving and changing in the country and in the world, and I think about my kids and what will affect what I have on my kids and and, and, I, and I start thinking about them and, and what path or what slippery slope are we on right now that we're entertaining, you know, certain pieces of legislation and we're, you know, and we're protesting things that it's like, how on earth can you protest that? And I sit there and, and I get mad. I don't hurt. I don't mourn. I don't, I don't feel a, a genuine sense of, oh, man. But you see, my anger has never led me to do anything productive. My anger has never let me, led me to do anything productive. In fact, my anger doesn't even lead me to prayer. It just leads me to more anger. I just get ticked off. And you know what's the best thing? When you're ticked off and you call somebody and get them ticked off. And then you get ticked off together. And you can just be angry. And you can just sit and be mad together. Because this person believes what I believe. And so we just kind of bounce off of our anger and it's great and it's soothing. But is anything ever accomplished? Is, a mo is there a moment where we stop and say, man, for real though, as opposed to anger, what about genuine hurt? Because the fact of the matter is, is that whether it expresses itself in a view that is different, whether it expresses itself in a piece of legislation that you disagree with, whether it expresses itself in whatever shape or form, what it is at its root is a person that is in need. It's a person that is searching, that is clawing, that is scratching for some semblance of fulfillment or some semblance of what they think is the right thing to do when we as a body of believers know very well what is right and what is wrong. But as opposed to sitting and being hurting and seeing the genuine need, what we do is we just entertain our anger. We just entertain our, uh, ourselves being, being mad. You see, church, I believe that the time is now not for an angry church. I believe the time is now for a broken church. I believe that the time is now for a mourning church, a weeping church, a church that does not look at the world with disdain, but concern and a genuine desire to help. Genuine desire to help. Nehemiah was brought to tears knowing that the people in Jerusalem were in need. When I, was, uh, when I was growing up, and even still, even now, one of my favorite um, worship songs was the song Hosanna. Who here knows the song Hosanna? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. My mom used to sing it. She would crush it. You know, she, just, she, would, she would just do the thing. And it was cool because I would be on the drum kit and you know, she her and I would like look at each other because she knew that it was just one of my favorite, one of my favorite songs. And the the portion of the song that was my absolute favorite was the bridge of that song. And it would say, Heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Heal my heart and make it clean. But that wasn't the line. That wasn't the one that really hit. 
The one that really hit was a line that said, break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. I love the line so much that I got a tattoo on my arm. My second tattoo. My first one was Psalms 1, 1 3. My second one was break my heart for what breaks yours. And the reason that I love that passage, that, that, that passage, the reason that I love that bridge so much is because I found it to be so profound to look at the face of God and say, God, if you could break my heart for what breaks yours, if I could just for a second slap on the lenses that you have and not look at the world with this humanly disdain that I have, but can I put on the glasses that you have on and see the world and feel that hurt? Because I believe that the Father does not look at this earth with disdain and with disgust. I feel that he looks at this world hurting. Hurting. Because he understands that what is needed there is him. And what people do is reject him. But if only they would embrace him, they would experience that fulfillment that only comes from him. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. The time is now for a hurting church. The time is now for a, a hurting church, one that actually mourns for the lost. One that doesn't turn on the news and think, man, let's get, let's get angry for the next 15 minutes, but one that looks and says, God, let's pray. Can we just pray? Can we just pray because my anger we won't accomplish anything, but my prayers will. Prayers move, even if it's not depicted on the screen, because uh, people changing their ways doesn't sell on, on, on TV. But, but prayer moves. Prayer actually works. Can we be broken? Can we be a church that is hurried? Amen? Nehemiah goes before the Lord in prayer, and he recognizes the error in the Israelites, right? He recognizes the fact that they dropped the ball 100%. But then he also acknowledges where he himself has sinned before the Lord. And right, right, he goes, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. It's funny because this, uh, this has been a theme that has come up in a number of my, of my messages that I have preached recently. And the, the Lord just continues to show it to me. I think there's something to be said about a Christian whose posture before the Lord is always on their knees. I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually. On their knees. A Christian, to, a Christian who is attuned to their own consistent need for God's grace and compassion and mercy. One who's very well aware. Time is now for a broken church. The time is now for a mourning church, yes. But I think that the time is now for a church that takes ownership of their own brokenness. Takes ownership of their own brokenness. You see, because uh, it's really easy, it's super easy to point out the mistakes in others. We can do that all day. And to be honest with you, it feels good. Right? It feels good to sit for a second and think, well, I'm doing better than they are. <laughs> right? At least I got it a little bit more figured out than they do. Right? Like, ah, boy, that's pretty bad. You know, like, I thought mine was bad, but so they're, boy, it's, they're, they're really bad. It feels good to do that. 
feels good to assume that your situation and your circumstances are exactly the same. And so you have clearly made it out better than they have. And you clearly made better decisions, right? Because we got it figured out. Super easy to do that. Very easy to do that. But it's a heck of a lot harder to pick up the log in our own eyes. Is it not? It's super hard to sit and evaluate our own brokenness and our own mistakes and our own issues and the ways that we drop the ball on a daily basis. Right? A heck of a lot easier to pick out the big things that people are doing because they're just easy targets. We got specks left and right in our minds. There is um, there's this Navy SEAL that I, I like to follow. Um, I follow him on Instagram, and, I, and I've seen a ton of his videos, and, and I, I, I purchased one of his books. His name is Jocko Willick. Jocko Willick. Look him up. The dude is an animal. I mean, like, he, he was a Navy SEAL, and he's one of those guys that, like, I'm pretty sure he can kill you with a spoon. You know what I mean? Like, he's one of those guys. Um, and, and so he was in the Navy SEALs. He deployed numerous times to Afghanistan at the beginning of the war. Uh, and uh, he, he now, you know, he, he got out of the service, and now what he does is he does consulting work for companies. And he, what he does is he kind of evaluates the leadership methods and stuff and, and sees how um, effective it is to the rest of the organization. But one of the things that Jocko is really well known for is, uh, is this, this philosophy of sorts that he ended up writing a book about and it's called extreme ownership. Extreme ownership is what he called it. And essentially what it is is that everything rises and falls on a leader that owns everything that is going on within their organization. Not a leader that says, oh, well, that person dropped the ball. Yeah, but you're that person's leader, though. So if they're dropping the ball, oftentimes it's a reflection of you because you dropped the ball in some way, shape, or form. That's tough. That's really tough. Right? So he shares a story in his book. And, um, and there's actually, you can, you can find it on YouTube where he talks about it, but there was a mission that he did that, that he led in Afghanistan, and the worst possible thing that could happen, happened. That worst possible thing is fratricide. Fratricide is good guys shooting good guys. It's your squad shooting your own squad. It's the worst thing that could happen. And sure enough, in one of the missions that, that he led, that happened, that occurred, which is absolutely horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And sure, there was a lot of there was a lot of players, a lot of variables, a lot of people involved that were in charge, that were moving pieces and stuff like that. And but even still, it, it went down and, and and good people were hurt because of a I mean a terrible error, a terrible mistake. And so in the you know, the, the after review, after action review, where they're talking, you know, where his management, where his leadership came and said, okay, so what was, what was the deal? Like, what happened? Truth be told, he had reason to say, like, okay, well, this fell apart because this person didn't do this, and this fell apart because this person wasn't here. But the fact of the matter is that he was the leader of both of those men. And so what does he do? He doesn't blame either of them. He took extreme ownership of the situation. It was the reason that those men were hurt was because I failed as a leader. I was the one that dropped the ball. Imagine now for a moment having to own up to the reason that we have an American soldier that was injured, that was hurt, because another American shoulder shot him. It's because I'm the one that made a mistake. And yet he did. 
And after that, there was multiple guys that said, no, but I, I contribute. Like, look, I dropped the ball in my own capacity. And Ogo over here said, no, no, but I also messed up as well. But they followed the lead of the man, the man in charge that was willing to own up to his error. And it was, it, it spoke volumes of his leadership. In fact, it actually contributed to the, the rapport that he built with his men. Because they saw before them a leader that was willing to own up to their to his mistakes, to own up, not pass the buck, not point at the errors of others, at the issues of others, but say, you know, no, I have a part in this as well. Nehemiah stood there and he said, the Israelites have dropped the ball. The Israelites, the reason that they're in the situation that they're in is because, yes, they have messed up, but Lord, I too have messed up in my father's house. I, too, have turned away from your word. I, too, have looked the other way. I'm no different than they are. I, myself, have, have messed up and have sinned against you. I was hearing a, a message last week, uh, and it was talking about the single greatest issue that the world takes with the church. You know what that is? The single greatest issue that the world has against the church. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. You hear it a lot. If you've, been, if you've been in the church long enough, you hear somebody say, yeah, we're full of hypocrites over there. Like, it's just kind of old news, you know, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> it's the church's hypocrisy. It's Christians saying one thing on Sunday and doing another thing during the week. It's the churches with pastors that have been preaching to turn away from sin for years only to have the senior pastor fall on himself. <clears throat> what we have to understand is that hypocrisy is the result of simply of, of, of not taking ownership of where we fall short. It's not being attuned to where we, where it is that we drop the ball. It's not being attuned to where we, man, I am just as guilty. I am just as guilty. I too drop the ball. The world is hurting, but I'm hurting as well. Fortunately, though, I have found a savior that has provided me grace and has provided me forgiveness and has provided me salvation. And I need it every single day. Every single day. Time is now for a church that, that takes ownership. That takes ownership. So Nehemiah oh, mourns. He takes ownership. And then he takes action. And verse 11 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants whose delight uh, to, fear, uh, to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of of this man. Now the reason that he prays that in chapter in chapter one is because in chapter two, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king and to Xerxes. And in chapter two, he goes before the king and he tells the king, Look, here's the deal. I want to go to Jerusalem and I want to rebuild the wall. I want to rebuild the wall. I want you to sign off on it and allow me to go and rebuild the wall. But more than that, I also want you to give me documentation for the other governors and rulers in the land to let them know, hey, you need to allow me safe passage because you have ordained me to go and rebuild the wall. Not only that, not only that, but I also want you to provide me with a letter to Asaph, who is the keeper of the king's force, so that he can provide me timber so that I can rebuild the gates. It's a pretty big ask, right? It's a pretty big ask. But the Lord grants him favor in the eyes of the king and the king signs off on the whole thing. So much so that Nehemiah, when he goes, he goes with officers of the army and horsemen as well. He found absolute favor in the eyes of the king. 
It's interesting because the minute that you decide that you want to actually do the work of the Lord, God begins to grant you favor with key people. We talked about that this morning, about favor. The minute that you say, God, this is it. I'm going to start putting in the work. You've called me to be a blessing. You've called me to this. you called me to preach. You've called me to, to, to be a, a testimony. You've called me to be a light. I'm ready. That's it. I'm turning back. Now is the time. I'm done, you know, uh, beating on the bush. Like, I'm, I'm like, this is it. It's crazy how when you finally commit, God begins to grant you favor. And he begins to open doors for you. So that the plans and purposes that he has can finally come through. Can finally actually occur. Amen? Amen. Now that's not to say that you don't encounter opposition. Because opposition is the name of the game, right? Opposition is how you grow. Opposition is how you learn. However, just as much as you can experience opposition, you're going to experience favor as well. Amen. You're going to experience favor as well. If you read the rest of the story of Nehemiah, the man had problems left and right. Problems left and right. But when it came down to it, they rebuilt the wall. And they did it in record time. But it requires us to take action. It, it requires us to, to be a church that is, that's mobilized. I mean, we, we, we read it in the book of, uh, of James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that, that, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, uh, you hoard and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We can't just show up on Sundays and that be the end of it. We can't. We, this, this can't be the, just this thing that we do here for a couple of hours, right? Because then that contributes what? To the hypocrisy that the world accuses us of. Accuses us of right? We're here, and we pray, and we sing, and we do the thing, and then Monday, I get down in the same freaking funk as everybody else. No testimony, no light, no actual contribution, no encouragement, no, no trying to actually help people that are in need. No, we're just, we're just in the thick of it. church that takes action is one that asks God, God, how, how can I be a light in my workplace today? Right? It's, it's, it's on a daily basis. Church, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. And we are mobilized together as a collective, yes, but individually as well. It is meaningless if we're not mobilized in our personal lives. It's just, it just is. If we are not active and our relationship with the Lord, and how it is that we are going to then show that relationship to others, express that relationship to others, in hopes of pulling people out of the funk that they're in, then what are we even doing? What? Why are we wasting time? Lord, can I give an encouraging word today? Who do you have for me? Who do you have? God, who needs to hear from you, and would you use me? Here's a prayer that's always going to get answered. It's God, would you open the door for me to preach to someone, to speak to someone, to share a testimony, to pray for someone? I can guarantee you, man, I will give you every dime that I have, that if you pray that prayer without question, God is going to answer it. God's going to answer it. God, would you use me? Here I am. Send me. That's a church that takes action. One whose faith permeates every aspect of their life. 
the world where we're at right now in society, guys, we, I mean, we, the, the, they can't afford a lethargic church. They don't, know, they don't know it. But they can't afford a lethargic church. The world is craving for an authentic, active church, active body of believers. They don't know they are, but they are. That's what they're craving for. Nehemiah took action. And after much toil and challenges, they rebuilt that wall. And they, and they did it in record time. Church, the time is now, the time is now for an effective church to rise. An effective one. An effective church isn't one with the best sound system. It's not the one with the nicest sanctuary. It's not the one that has a building of their own. It's not not one that has the best coffee. That's not the church. I mean, if you look back in Paul's time, did they have any of it? They just had a group of believers that would gather together, that believed the word of God, that dove into the word of God, and they would minister together. That's what they had. This bougie, westernized Christianity that we see today is fake news. It's, it's not real life. The reality, real, real, true ministry happens amongst the believers when they are when they mourn for those that are lost. It just so happens that we can gather together in a nice building, and those things are great, and having a nice sound system is great, and having a beautiful sanctuary is phenomenal. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that is not the whole, that is not the epitome of the church. Amen. It's just not. It's just not. It's not the one with the coolest pastor. Even though I think I'm pretty cool. <laughs> it's not the one with the most locations. It's an effective, an effective church is one where the individual members of that body of believers truly mourn those that are lost. Truly. Truly are broken for those that are lost. They have a heart for those that are seeking for something to fill that void. An effective church is one where, where they recognize their own brokenness. They don't sit on a high horse of moral superiority, but they're well aware of their own weaknesses. They're well aware of their need for forgiveness and grace. They're well aware. I am not blind to it. I need it every day. An effective church is one that takes action. One that walks the walk as much as they talk the talk. The the world is, is too crazy and it's hurting too much for us to be ineffective and for us to just be playing church on Sundays. Like if you're here to play church, man, just for real, that plants have been different with you. Because I go to the beach. I'm not even joking. Go to the beach, go to the mall, go to the golfing mall, go to a restaurant, I don't know. Do something, go to, go to Disney World. <laughs> Anything but this. But, but, but if you're here to get serious, the time is now then to get serious. The time is like right now, in this moment, right now. Just, I mean, seriously, just tap into what is happening in the world. There is no better time than now to be a light in the world. I think it's time for us to get real about our personal relationship with the Lord and what it is and how that affects others that we're around, whether that be in our workplace, whether that be in our family. I think it's time for us to stop being ineffectual and doing the church thing and for us to finally step into the role, into the role, into that effective church role that we were designed to be. One that truly pulls people out and brings them in to this beautiful relationship that we have with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen.
got a little bit of music playing. Well, it's I know, I was hearing that. Uh, the piano playing. Oh. Yeah, I keep hearing music. I'm going to go with my hair. I think the best thing that I can ever do if I bring a word and I'm granted the opportunity to, to, to bring more is to, I always say, be straight with you. Shoot straight. And I should shoot straight this morning and tell you that, you know what, I, I, man, I don't know that I've done all three. I, I don't think I'm going to check the box on all three of those. I think I've taken action, it's past tense, right? I've done it. Is it active? Am I taking action on a daily basis? Is it top of mind? No, I'm gonna be straight. Can we be straight for a moment? But the hurt, the, the world is, is, is far too, too hurt and in pain for that to be the case. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, sometimes I, I just allow anger to, to outweigh any true sense of mourning and hurt that I see in the world. It's just easier that way. I don't want to get that emotionally invested in the problems of others. Right? But isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus not weep himself? Was he not moved when he saw those that were hurting and in, and in pain? Who am I to think that all my problems are better, are far more, are far more superior? Did I not accept the call because Jesus looked upon me with hurt and disdain and took me in? And how about taking ownership? Ooh, man, I can't tell you the amount of times that I have looked at others and thought, man, I'm in a way better situation than they are. I have it clearly more figured out than they do. They're not doing it right. It should be done this way. Because that's going to accomplish what? Zero. What? Zero. It accomplishes nothing. We are in need of a church that mourns. We are in need of a church that takes ownership. And we are in need of a church that takes action. The time is now for an effective church. For an effective church. So I will stand here before you this morning and say, I myself have been ineffective. I've been ineffective at times. I've dropped the ball. Just being straight. But fortunately, we have a God that grants us new mercies every day. Amen. And fortunately, we have a God that says, just come to me. Come to me. And he will give us a brand new slate, if you will. Amen. And so if you're this, you're here this morning and with eyes open, like, I'm not gonna stand up here and be straight if you're not gonna be straight with me. If you can tell me that you've been ineffectual, raise your hand. Be honest, hundred percent. Thank you for your open, for your for your honesty, for being straightforward. That's what a body of believers is about. Amen. Those that can be honest with one another and say, "I have been dropping the ball. I have not been. I have not been living up to what God has asked me to. I've been in my own, you know, in my own world, doing my own thing. But here and now, we can stand together as a group of believers and say, you know what? It's time for us to step up. Amen. Amen. For us to Amen. Be so let's bow our heads this morning. I want to pray with each and every one of you. I want to thank you for those of you that rose their hand. Uh, let's just go before the Lord and make a declaration that this morning is different, that today is different, that after hearing this word, I don't know if it convicted you. I hope it did because it convicted the heck out of me when I was sitting there preparing. The prayer is that we don't just get convicted and think, man, boy, I'm not getting mad that the pastor really stepped on my toes this morning. No, that's not, that's not good enough. What, what needs to be done is you 
you hear the word and you say, man, okay, that was convicting. Now what do I do? How do I change? How do I now make the, make the changes that, that can add, allow me to be an effective church the way I've been called to be? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And we come to you right now as a body of believers, Lord. And we recognize the fact that, you know what, we have been ineffective, Lord. We have embraced your, your grace and embrace your forgiveness upon our lives, Lord, but we have been ineffective in our use of that grace and that forgiveness, God. We have gotten caught in a rhythm, perhaps caught in a funk, whatever you call it, Lord. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is a world that is hurting and there is a world that is in need of us to be active, a world that is in need of us not to be angry Christians, but mourning Christians, one that truly genuinely feel, genuinely hurt for those that are searching for an answer, searching for you, Lord. God, this world is aching, is aching for not a bunch of hypocrites. That's been the accusation, sure, but an accusation with reason, because we have been the ones that have done the church thing on Sunday, only to turn around on Monday and look no different than the world, Father. So we come to you today and we say, Lord, forgive us. In the same way that Nehemiah came before you, Lord, and recognized the sin of his people, we come to you before you, Lord, and recognize, you know what, the world has dropped the ball, but just like Nehemiah uh, recognized it about himself, we too recognize that we ourselves have dropped the ball as well, Lord. We are no different. We ask you that you forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, and teach us how to be effective, Lord. If our heart is hardened, if our heart is hardened, Lord, if we look at this world with disdain, Father God, I pray that you soften our hearts to look upon this world with love and compassion and to see past the differences, to see past the screaming and the loud voices, to see past the things that don't make any sense to us and see a heart of an individual, of a person that is hurting and searching for you, Lord. I pray that you break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, I, I pray that when we look at this world, we do not look at the specks in everybody else's eyes and miss the logs sitting in our own, Lord. I pray that we not be a church of, of hypocrites that sit back and point fingers and say, oh, well, we have the moral right away over here. We've got it clearly figured out, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that we are well attuned to the fact that we are broken and in need of grace and forgiveness daily, Lord. Daily, Lord, that we come to you on our knees, Father God. Thanking you for your grace and your forgiveness, knowing that it's not as though we've arrived and we've gotten it all figured out, but we need your grace on our lives every single day, Lord. Father God, I pray that you forgive us for not taking action, for seeing opportunities perhaps in our home life or in our work life, and not and, and letting it slide, letting it slip through, letting it just, you know, slip through our hands, Father God, when you have literally teed us up for a movement of you, Lord. I pray that we don't allow those things to just slip through our fingers anymore, those moments, Father God, but that we be an active church, Lord, an active church, ones that see the need and looks for a way to fill that need with you, Lord. We thank you, God, that there is grace and mercy upon our lives, that there is forgiveness, that there is, there is always new mercies every day with you, Lord. Today is a new day, Father, and today we declare that the time is now for us to be an effective church. It's, it's no longer time for, be, for us to be lethargic and sit back and lack a day single Father God, but for us to be effective. Yes. Yes. We don't have time. We need to be effective. 
We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 never accepted Christ in your heart. Like I always tell, if you, if you fell off the wagon, right? You were on it and then you, you, know, you got pushed off and got distracted. For those that are watching online, or perhaps that's you this morning. You want to just get back on, get back on track with every eye closed, with every head bowed. We're going to pray together as a body of believers. Would you just repeat after me for those that are watching online and for those that are here? Father God, Father God, God, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for sending your son Jesus. Sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. Die on the cross for forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, we ask you. Jesus, we ask you to reside in our heart. In the name of the Lord and Savior of our lives. Today we choose to follow you. Today we choose to be effective. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.